Hello and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast. Today's episode is with my friend and Olympic athlete Takeshi Fujiwara. Takeshi and I met at the University of Texas at Arlington in 2008, where he did his MBA while representing the UTA track and field. Takeshi Fujiwara was born and raised in El Salvador to a Japanese father and a Salvadoran mother. His father is a pioneer in judo teaching, Japanese cuisine in El Salvador, and former representative of the Japanese embassy during the civil war in El Salvador. His mother, a Salvadoran national champion in the 100-meter hurdles and 400 meters, contributed as a sports educator. Takashi Fujiwara is a Japanese athlete in possession of the record of Tokyo-Yokohama and El Salvador's national record in the 400 meters with a personal best of 45.44 seconds in the event. As an athlete, he has participated in the Olympic Games of Athens in 2004 and six world championships. As a scholar, he's received a bachelor's degree in business administration at the Interamerican University of Puerto Rico an online professional certificate in data science from Harvard University, and an MBA at the University of Texas at Arlington in economics and international business. Takeshi is a co-founder of Green Dreams Athletics Youth Club, a musician and an entrepreneur. Currently, he is in preparation for the next Olympic Games in Tokyo, which are scheduled to be held in 2001. Takashi and I talk about a lot of things. His new book that is called Strong Like Never Before, Transform Your Life in 12 Weeks, that is available on Amazon, his diverse and multicultural upbringing, and his path towards becoming an Olympic athlete. What stood out to me during this conversation is Takeshi's well-roundedness and deep wisdom. We talk about the importance of having a good support system, setting goals, believing in yourself and the goals that you set for yourself, and through it all, having fun and cultivating joy through gratitude. I love Takeshi's optimistic view on life and ability to build in space for grace and his overall wisdom. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Takeshi, I... Uh... Love your book. I want to congratulate you on your book. It's super exciting. I love the videos, <laughs> how easy you made it, uh, how easy it is to follow. And uh, one of the things I loved is the introduction you wrote in your book about uh, your life and uh, your upbringing, being from a multicultural family, your dad being from Japan, your mom being from El Salvador. Uh, you had quite some like different personalities both of them were probably quite different how was your upbringing how was your childhood thank you for having me on your podcast the upbringing for a multicultural person has to have some interesting points <laughs> i think uh growing up as a salvadoran japanese salvadoran in el salvador has been quite fun Even though many people would say fun in El Salvador as a kid, in the times where there was a civil war, maybe not so fun, right? Many of the struggles we face in the end help us develop strong character, I believe. And that helps in the latter years growing up and developing as an athlete. I think that's, that's a good part and that's a, a, one of the positive points I can take out from my upbringing and, and growing in El Salvador. I think my dad, Japanese, and my mom, Salvadoran, you can imagine how different those two cultures are. Japan, very strict, very professional, very on time for everything. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before a, a, an appointment might seem late <laughs> in Japan. In El Salvador, five, 10, 20 minutes after an appointment might seem okay. Those two cultures I grew up with 
learning from my dad telling me things like you have to study and whenever i i would come back home and and tell my dad hey dad i got a a 90 on my exam that's an a what he would say is well 90 it's normal you you have to get 100 and then even though if you get 100 it it will still be maybe not on par with japanese standards he would say so i grew yeah so all these things and i grew up uh thinking i had to perform better than the best results i could get here in el salvador thinking maybe in japan it's gonna be a lot harder it's gonna be more difficult to achieve something so in order to achieve something in japan i need to be uh perfect in my scores here in el salvador and my mom would always give us so much love so much tenderness as a latina we would get that loving kindness from her and she would be very uh, forgiving and very well my dad would would think it was slacking <laughs> or it would be uh, being too soft on on the kids my dad wouldn't hug us or tell us I love you. And my mom would tell us, I love you maybe a thousand times a day. And my dad would say, everybody knows a parent should love their kids. You don't have to say it. And my mom would just say it. And she would say, you have to express it, right? So you have the, the two worlds, uh, Japan, very conservative, not speaking or, or expressing the emotions. Uh, even though they feel them, they won't express. And that's part of the culture. And growing up in El Salvador, Latino culture is all about expressing whatever feeling you have, maybe expressing them too much sometimes. It, it was a, a, a night and day type of upbringing, and I, I tried to get the best of, of both worlds. Thank you for that. I totally now see it. Your dad setting high standards and goals for you, and you definitely have taken it into your education in athletics being principled and disciplined but you've always that since i first met you you have this calmness and warmness about you and you have this very positive warm welcoming attitude something that attracts people you were one of the nicest athletes at uta you always had a good chance <laughs> and everybody wanted to hang out i can see this perfect balance and how you implemented it and i have to commend you on that because that can be very challenging for <laughs> parents how they figure out that they really right. like diversity your mom or your dad sets a dinner at 6 p.m how does <laughs> dynamic work growing up my mom would said the dinner or lunch or breakfast schedule it was open only when my dad was around then we would eat together but if he wasn't at home at that um, moment in time when we were going to have dinner or lunch I was probably eating watching tv and my brother at his room and everybody just loose <laughs> all around the house so yeah my my dad was always bringing that order <laughs> in the house and my mom we would just think of having fun with her <laughs> <laughs> I'm the youngest of four uh, my brothers will say that uh, my mother was uh, a little bit more easy on me than on them she would say things like you should go play and don't worry so much about homeworks and you can do homeworks later and my dad would say study you have to study you cannot get anything less than a is is just bad <laughs> so yeah it was uh night and day really everything around schedule and culture wise and and learning about the Japanese culture. And well, at that moment, I wasn't thinking so much of learning about the Japanese culture. I would, I would just question myself and say, why is my dad so uh, hard? Or why, why won't my dad say, I love you? Or why wouldn't he hug me? It was just uh, so uh, weird to me because my mom would hug us every chance she'd get. And, and I would see my other friends how, how they were with their families and thing and I, I would say what's wrong with it right but growing up i got the hold of how japanese culture 
is I didn't go to Japan to live until I graduated from a university. Until then, I went and lived there and immersed myself in, in the culture in every way possible. But growing up, it was always something I wouldn't see clear. My Latino upbringing would always be there. And my friends would ask me if I considered myself more Latino or more Japanese. And I would say, well, I think I'm Latino, but everybody in, in El Salvador would say, oh, you're Asian. You look Asian. Oh, your name, Takeshi. But where is it from? Japan, I would say my dad. Oh, so you're Japanese, right? And yeah, I guess, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, growing up, I, I, I didn't know exactly if I was more Japanese or more Latino because of my upbringing. I thought, yeah, maybe uh, growing up with dad made me a little bit more Asian or, or something. But then when I went to Japan as a grown-up, everybody would say, where are you from, right? And I'm like, oh, I'm Japanese. And people will say, no, but where are you from? And I'd say again, I am Japanese. <laughs> and they would ask me a third time. And then I wondered and said, well, Japanese are not convinced or are not okay with just uh, I'm a Japanese answer when they see me. I thought I'd look kind of Japanese, but when I went to Japan, then I realized I didn't look so Japanese as I thought. So the answer for Japanese people, whenever they asked me, I understood that I needed to explain something. I had to say something like, well, my dad is Japanese and my mom is Salvadoran. Until then, they were okay with my answer and they would go, oh, I see. It's such a big issue right now in, in, in the States, racial issues and, and, and everything like that. Even though it's a big thing, in Japan, we are a hundred years back. It's still very homogeneous and very um, strict to their culture, to their own race, and everything outside. That's why there's there's a word for it, and it's gaijing. It means outsider. It's such a strong word if you think about it, because also being in a island culture that we are this island and everything outside is something different. It's changing now, for sure, but we're still years uh, back from from the states. And even with this change and, and getting more modern in this age and world, there's still a lot of room to get better in, in that sense for foreigners living in Japan. How was it for you as a kid when people, kids were asking you, well, you know, you don't look completely Salvadorian. Did it make you think, oh, are they pointing something out? Was it difficult for you or were you not really thinking about it at that point? I think maybe because I was the youngest of four, my brothers had lived uh, what I was experiencing eight years before I did. Oldest brother is eight years older. I think whenever I got to face those problems, that was a blessing for me to have my brothers, I guess. And maybe telling them something like, hey, they're calling me this. And they would just laugh and say, it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay. And I would go like, but they're calling me Chino and stuff. In El Salvador, in, in all Latin America, people will call Asians Chino or, chi or China. Uh, which means Chinese or Chinese guy or Chinese girl, right? Of course, if you are not Chinese, a Chinese citizen, they're calling you by another nationality, right? A anybody could get offended, especially in the States. It's very strong, right, to be called yeah. something like that. Uh, but you in Latin... Well, I try not to because people guessing, but they guess me, you Russian? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not that far east. <laughs> Exactly. It's the same comparison, right? In Latin America, if you look a little bit Asian, they will call you Chino or China if you're a girl. So some friends would call me, hey, Chino. And I would say to my brother, hey, look, they're calling me this and it's okay. It's okay. So it was funny. It wasn't something to really get angry at. But of course, it's a matter of how you see things. And maybe when they were growing up, being the first and only in their school being called like that, it was maybe stronger for them or harder to overcome. 
that's one of the blessings to maybe have an older brother. So I know you are an older sister, so thank you. <laughs> Definitely, older brothers paved the way for younger brothers in many ways. I think that's one of the funny, serious things you could face growing up in El Salvador in Latin American culture. You've said so much, even the, the Civil War, you were mm. through like fit in, not fit in, and having two cultures at home. And I would love to dive in into even your Japan experience later, because even at that point, I mean, being called something like outsider, how friendly or not friendly was that experience? I just imagine that built a lot of resilience and well, I either gonna worry about the people or I'm just not gonna worry and be who I am and just be true to myself. And I think you have that. You shake things up very easily. It seems like <laughs> your own personality. How easy or difficult was it to find it through those experiences? I think I really got it from my mom. She is like that. She will just say, ah, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Don't give that attention or or she would say, I don't care, things like that. So just being balanced in that sense of not being so strict and not being so loose or being loose in things you need to be loose and being strict in things you need to be is, is helpful. In Japan, people like me coming from different backgrounds and cultures, it's pretty hard. Well, you know Naomi Osaka, and I don't know if you know about the, the struggles she's faced in Japan. How she is so outspoken about now helping with uh, racial issues in the States. I can relate to her in the sense that living in Japan, until I went and lived in Japan, I realized that it wasn't that easy for people with that wasn't Japanese, you know, just being asked, yeah, but where are you from? When you already said you were Japanese, you needed an explanation, right? You needed to explain what was going on with you, <laughs> why you didn't look that way or the other. And I've been lucky in the sense that being an Olympic athlete and excelling at something like sports gives you a way or gives you a leeway to be accepted in a more welcoming way in Japan. And it was my experience with many of my friends and many of the people I met whenever they knew I was an Olympic athlete or I went to this or that university, then it opened a way. It's hard to say, right? Because it's very unfortunate for many multicultural people growing in Japan that maybe they are not Olympic athletes, they are not uh, famous, they are not excelling at sports at any given moment because maybe growing up you're a kid what, what can you give at that moment? But it's very difficult to grow up in an environment where you are not really accepted right away in that sense, because maybe just of the color of your skin or, or maybe uh, because of your name, a different name, maybe not Japanese name. Or I was fortunate in that sense that I was able to develop and move around as an Olympic athlete. and tried to work for the Japanese team and compete at the world championships with the Japanese team. Once I moved to Japan and previously I represented El Salvador and with much pride and much joy, I did I represented El Salvador, my mother's country. And then when I moved to Japan, I thought I was given the opportunity to compete for Japan. I accepted the opportunity and thought maybe I'll try now make it for the Olympics for my dad's country. And remember that uh, both my parents have been athletes. I read your mom was a, uh, she ran 400 in El Salvador. Right. 400 meters, national champion for El Salvador and Central America. And my dad came to El Salvador to teach judo. So they both dedicated their lives to teaching sports. One of the funny things or interesting things when I was growing up is that both my parents would tell me, study don't do sports. And I thought to myself, why would they say that? And they would say, it's easier to study than to be a professional athlete. I couldn't understand. I would say, how could playing soccer, playing basketball or running, 
would be harder than studying. <laughs> and as the years went by, I got to understand the feeling of my parents, how much sacrifice there is in sports, how much uh, you have to give up to build a good and successful sporting career. It's not easy. So then I understood what they were trying to tell me. Yeah. How did you choose athletics? You have these two different cultures. They're both telling you just go to school, do good grades. You have flexibility, seems like, with your with your mom a bit to have a little bit of fun and enjoy. Then you have the influence of your dad to judo. Your mom did athletics. How did you choose 400 meters and then running? Actually, I started doing soccer. I played soccer during my high school years and I played in a professional junior league for one of the big teams in El Salvador. And at the same time, I started doing track and field. So at that moment, I thought soccer was so fun. It was all about playing and having fun. And then in contrast with track and field, 400 meters, it was all about grueling trainings and feeling tired and maybe throwing up at trainings and feeling dizzy, uh, not being able to walk because my uh, legs would hurt, all my body would hurt. And <laughs> so I thought, oh, let me just do soccer. I was uh, focusing more on soccer at, at one point in time. Then a breakthrough moment came when I did very good in one national competition in track and field here. And I think I got maybe first place in the 400 meters and everybody was very surprised. I was surprised because I got first place. My coach at that time was surprised because of the time I had run. I didn't understand the times of what was to run uh, 49 seconds in the 400 meters. You could tell me it was a 55 or a 50 or I wouldn't care because I, I was thinking first place was good. My coach would say, you have to quit soccer. You have to dedicate yourself to track. This is your sport. And if you are not playing for the World Cup already in, in El Salvador's uh, soccer team, then you, you should quit already because many of the professional players, they are in, in the national team by 15 years old. And, and I was, well, I'm 17. I still can do it. I, I would tell him. And he was like, look at Ronaldo. And well, not, not Cristiano, the other Ronaldo. <laughs> they true? started. I don't know if they started 15 or was it his intimidation technique to say, oh, you're not that good in soccer, just pick track. Well, I think it was both. <laughs> it was both, definitely. My coach, he's a Cuban coach. He came to El Salvador maybe 25 years ago. I was lucky enough to get to train with him and his team. He came from Cuba to El Salvador to teach uh, track and field, and he's dedicated his life to that. Here working in El Salvador and still helping me in my trainings now. He's been very useful and I was blessed to have him at that point in time because he made me realize and he made me change from soccer to track. Two years from that moment, I was able to qualify for the Olympic Games and uh, he was right. Well, he saw the talent, so that's excellent. And so how long have you been working together since it was your first coach? How long has that been? How has it influenced you? It's been... Almost 20 years of track and field since I started. Now my coach is the coach of the world champion in the 400 meters, a female athlete. She is Salwa Nasser. She is an athlete from Bahrain. And my coach now is from Dominican Republic. He is uh, working in Bahrain right now. And we are getting the trainings and everything just by phone. So it's a long distance relationship. The coach that helped me from Cuba when I was a junior athlete, he's still working here in El Salvador. So I'm not receiving the trainings from him anymore, but he's always an advisor. He's my friend and he's always checking up on me with, with the trainings and, and timings. So yes, I have a good team here. 
That's excellent. Maybe touch base more on the training. You're uh, preparing now for the Tokyo Olympics 2021 because of this craziness, COVID-19. Like we all have been eagerly awaiting, is it going to happen this year? And if we all are who are not competing, I can't even imagine how, how that is for you and the athletes who are supposed to compete. How has this year been for you? How is training going? I believe your first Olympics were in Japan, correct? Well, first Olympics was Athens, 2004. Uh-huh. Definitely, it's been challenging. I competed this year, 2020, in Texas in March, Texas Tech University. I went and visited Coach Sauerheg and stayed there for some time. And then I went to compete to New York to the New Balance track and also to Princeton University. I was lucky enough to get three races in before this whole situation. I got back to El Salvador and five days later, they closed the airport. Wow! I just got in and and everything was shut down. I was lucky enough to uh, come back home and be able to stay here during this time. El Salvador was one of the most strict controls for the pandemics they closed everything for almost five months so the stadium was closed as well and also we couldn't go out of the house not even to run to the streets i bought a running machine at home i trained at home and i didn't have too many weights to work out with so i had to get creative and do a lot of body weight workouts It was pretty challenging, but now, thank God, everything's getting back to normal again. And the National Stadium has reopened for some athletes. So we are able to train again and prepare for the Tokyo Olympics next year. It hasn't been the best preparation, but I guess we've made the best out of the situation we've had. Getting ready and trying to get on time for the upcoming races next year. Yeah. That must be really hard. How is the stadium? Do they have it divided based on time or do you kind of rotate who can train up for which time so you're not all training? Exactly. That's how they've managed the whole training situation. Pretty much they give you five available times where you can work out and you can choose one. And then the periods of time we have started at about one hour and 30 minutes you had one hour and 30 minutes to train. Now it's gotten a little bit longer, up to two hours. We're managing to try and and do everything in those two hours. Yeah, wow. I would like to talk about the training. To me, actually, 400 meters, I don't know, four and eight, those are brutal distances, probably. Mm. The worst distances you can run. Yes, yes. A lot of pain and sprint as fast as you can for a really long time. Going back, as I'm reflecting what you've told me about your mom and dad and having the flow, grace, but structure with training, how has that influenced you? Because I think one of the easiest things for athletes is to overtrain, or that was always easiest for me. I've had too many <laughs> if I was wiser about things and actually not train as much, I could have been a better athlete. How do you build this what I call fun and and grace that you've gotten from your mom into your training not to point out but you're 35 it's amazing that you're competing for Olympics how's the training how do you also reflect to adjust as you grow older because there's something that even me and I don't work out for Olympics again women age uh, faster that's the unfair thing than men (laughs) (laughs) But I've definitely had to find you, even for my workout at home that I do every day, my regeneration routine and and sure Mm -hmm. acupuncture or I do more chiropractor. So I have to be way wiser about my pains that I used to be 10 years ago. That's true. What you mentioned, you can see it very clear on going through as the years go by and you experience many of these injuries you mentioned and many of these times where you just feel drained and you just feel like, wow, what's happening with my body? I I just don't feel it. I just feel tired all the time, feel very stressed out all the time. And yes, experience really helps you at coping and 
and realizing sometimes you're training too much. And many times athletes don't have the opportunity to have so much longevity to realize these things until sometimes many young athletes quit before realizing the problem was that they were training too much. There are few athletes that train long enough to be able to realize they can give themselves a little bit more space to relax and to rest from training. So that's really important. One of the things I've realized is that it's not only training a lot that can be the problem, but also not resting enough or not sleeping enough. Because sometimes even if you train too much, if you say that word too much, if you rest and sleep a lot, you might be able to cope. So there's a relation with how much you train and how much you rest. And competing in this grueling event of the 400 meters, you really have to give your body and, and yourself some time to rest, to recover. Yes, training is very demanding, sometimes 10 sessions a week. But I remember you training at, at the university. You were training more than five hours sometimes a day. <laughs> That's unheard of in, in track. I, I, I don't think you... It may not have been the smartest thing I have done. <laughs> Yeah, but that's why you were so good at competitions uh, on our conference. But definitely what you're saying, injuries come. Our bodies say, you're making me work. Pain will start coming here and there and over there. <laughs> it's, it's just something natural, yes. natural response. Do you have any more tips how to be more mindful? It's easier to look back, oh, this is what I should have done better. From the rear view mirror, the path is so much clearer. And if you're standing on the intersection and you're going through it, and even just suffering through the injuries, those were the hardest for me. I took them as an enemy to progress instead of a sign of recovery. Mm. Any tips or tricks you have learned how to be more, more mindful and even maybe stay positive through the injury. It was the hardest for me. I was like, oh my God, I was in such an awesome shape. And those always happen when you're like close to your top shape, right? The injuries are then so much easier to kind of peek in when, when you're really pushing your body to improve these small little things. Do you have a, any tricks what helped you or coaches that were more aware, mindfulness practices, or just being very self-aware of how you're feeling? I think as you're growing and you are starting to understand your body and whenever you feel in such a way, you realize, oh, my body's telling me this. Or if you're feeling in such a way, oh, I am prepared to give my all in practice today. Or I'm not prepared to give my all in practice. I should be a little bit more careful today when I practice. So those things you are learning to get the feedback you need from your body and how you're feeling and how you're tuning your feedback with what you do in training. I think that's an acquired thing you get from practicing enough. But uh, sometimes getting the stress out of your mind and having a thankful attitude towards the opportunity you have of just being able to breathe, just being able to wake up one more day and being thankful for everything you have around you can take the stress or relieve the stress uh, in your mind. And we always want to uh, strive for perfection as athletes and we, we want to give the best and anything less than what we think we can give is many times a disappointment because we think, oh, but I could have, I should have, I would have. So all this uh, should have, could have, would have stress us out. And we don't realize that, yes, all this I could have done and I would have or I should have um, are just putting stress on us and not thinking, hey, 
I'm just thankful I'm here today and I'm giving my all today, that's good enough. Because at the end of the day, what we're able to do when we're giving our best is the most special thing we can give to everybody around us. And people know, and we know what we're giving out. Another thing is enjoying practice. There have been many years where maybe I haven't enjoyed practice as much as I should have. And then we go back to the should have and could have. But now it's the opportunity to say, okay, I am enjoying practice a little bit more than I used to. I'm enjoying practice like a teenager now that I'm in my 30s, more than than when I was a teenager <laughs> now that I'm in my 30s. Uh, and I think you could ask some of my, my training partners. I see them and, and I, I can see myself reflected in them. And, and I think, oh man, you're just having a, a hard time <laughs> training like like that, just being too serious and being so preoccupied on, on what the time will be or or on what what will the result of that race will be. Now, it's, it's funny because I see myself in those youngsters I'm training with right now, and I'm, and they see me, and, and they see me laughing, and they see me talking, and, and just being a little bit more calm than I used to, thinking I have been like this all my career. <laughs> and... I think in a way I've been playful and I would be able to make a good time on my friends and trainings, but maybe I was being too preoccupied with my results before. I cannot tell you that I'm not preoccupied or I'm not stressed out about what my times will be now or what I will be able to accomplish. Of course, I'm still stressed out. The times in my mind are always there because that's, I think as athletes, we're always thinking about our results and our trainings and, and this and that. But still, now I have another chip installed in my brain that says, be grateful. You're already 30 and you've uh, done this and whatever else you give, it's extra. And then there's another chip that says, enjoy the time you have. Well, let's see Let's see what, what the results will bring next year. <laughs> still, I'm thankful for my family and that they're supporting me thankful that I can still do running which is the sport I love and it's part of my career and and what I'm doing now and bringing all these experiences now to the younger athletes and to the youngsters in El Salvador mainly because I'm here right now in all Latin America that's in around the the world uh, I think we have this, as you said, we want to give back something, right? Things that we learn, we want to share. Yes. Being of service and giving back to the sport and community. And I know you're actually very big at it right now. You have been on a number of podcasts and uh, I know newspapers, magazines. Also, it really seems like it brings a lot of fulfillment and joy to your life. How do you balance that with your training or your day schedule? And how much is that a fuel of positivity, what you mentioned right now? One of these days I was thinking, promoting my book, and I've been called to TV programs and radio shows and newspaper pictures and this and that. And I was thinking, I don't know how people like Usain Bolt could make all those advertisements they do because I'm not even even making a tenth of the things they did. I'm reminded of how impressive it is just to manage and be able to cope with the training schedule and let's call it marketing schedule, how you promote your products or how you promote the things you want to share with people. And yes, as you mentioned I'm very happy to be able to share some of my athletic experience through this book. And it's just such a good platform to be able to give, explain in a simple way, in a fast and and very approachable manner for people to understand and to be able to make an improvement on anybody that wants to take on 
this type of change in their lives. Thank you. I definitely want to touch base on the book, which I ordered. So thank you for <laughs> coming up with it. Uh, I agree. It's very simple to read. You can list through it. The program is very easy to be understood. You even add your nutrition program and guidance there, which I would love to dive in. I'm super big into diet. And uh, mm. obviously, diet is a big part of health and pushing performance. That also may have been one of the things I have done wrong in the U.S. The U.S. diet when I came here was very much low-fat, no sugar or low sugar, but then you have sweeteners and <laughs> I fine-tuned my diet to where it probably spiked more inflammation because of what I ate, then got rid of inflammation. Mm. So then the recovery is, is worse. What made you actually to create this book now? Is it you have just ample time? Is it fitting in now as a tool with all of your well-roundedness, giving back passion for the sport and maybe COVID having a little bit more time on your hands? Definitely all those points help. Throughout the years, uh, people would approach me and say, hey, you're an Olympic athlete. You've competed the world championships. Can you tell me how can I get stronger? Or can you give me any tip of how I can get faster? Or what should I eat? Should I eat this? Is this okay? Do you eat this or that? Or do you think I can do this exercise like this? And how many times I should do this exercise? Do you think this exercise is good? So all these questions that uh, youngsters or, or people wanting to learn a little bit more of how to get fitter, they would bring up and I would take the time to explain when I could. And when I couldn't, then I would say, maybe I'll explain to you later or, or maybe in an email or in a message. But it's hard to explain everybody every day what things they can do to improve so throughout the years i realized how important it is for people to have a guide and that's a guide not only that's easy to understand but practical and very accessible and uh, explained in a way that anybody can do thinking about that and how many youngsters want to know about how to get fit, I thought, let me try and put this information together. So if somebody asks me now, I can tell them, I have all this information you need in this book. <laughs> yes, it's very practical and it gives a way for many people in Latin America and around the world. That's why also I focused on making it in Spanish and in English, just so I could share this program in a way that's easy and as you can see it's not only a virtual book because you can download it in your cell phone or in your ipad or in your computer it has all the videos where in the video we explain what's the exercise for and what muscles are trained and how to do it very practical I agree. And that's very important is also understanding the bigger why. So if you go in, this is how you're training and why. That was a lot how I have learned tennis. One of my first coaches was a really great coach. And she really drilled down to the why. She really taught me understanding even physics and the movement of how the body leans. You propel your angle of the racket. So all of these nuances Going back to the 400, you only have very short time to do everything right. I think that's the big difference between tennis because you have a relatively large amount of time. I can make mistakes, but then I have to iterate quickly to improve. But I do have the space to recover because it's a match that's made out of many points. Again, the 400 meters, you get one chance to do everything right in that short amount of time that you have trained for a year or two, the attention to detail and doing everything right from even just starting on time, that always makes me so nervous. Going back to the mental game, how do you prepare yourself for that? And also what stood out to me is this grace and grit that you've really built into your life and you seem to have in a really good dialed in balance. How do you put the daily grid into practice 
and be focused on the details and build the good habits while doing it with grace. So you build a flow into your life and the training. And that's what it sounds to me like you've really mastered it right now to where you know your body, how much you can push and pull and have this flow in your life to have space for fun and uh, be able to do it with lightness and uh, this ease of training. Yeah, Clary. A big part of this is my trust in God. It's really the base for me thinking whatever I do, God is guiding me. And it's not a, a matter of religion at all. It's not a, a matter of saying something trivial like everything uh, goes well if you believe in God. It's not that because, of course, there will always be trouble. There will always be problems. Believing in God doesn't mean your life will be perfect that everything you do will be great or that you will uh, have to forget about issues in your life. On the contrary, I think you will be faced with many challenges when you are a believer in the sense that if something goes wrong in your life, many people will say, why do you have this problem if you're saying uh, you believe in God? But believing in Jesus has really given me the opportunity to realize everything I do is not with my own strength I do. It's not because I am capable. It's not because I am worthy, but because He gives me the energy. He gives me the opportunity, the life we have right now. And we don't need to get to the lowest points in our lives to remember that we need God in us. I think many people, when they hit rock bottom, then they say, oh, God, help me. It's in any point in our lives that we have to have the grace. That word you said, the grace. Grace means to receive something without really being worthy of. And that's why that word is so impressive and so uh, graceful. <laughs> it's because uh, when we do things gracefully, it's because we do it in blissfully. It's seamlessly works and is seamlessly efficient and seamlessly on time. It's really a matter of putting our faith in God that can give you that sense that it doesn't matter if it goes well or if it goes wrong. You have the assurance that there's a purpose for it. And living purposefully, it's very important. And as an Olympic athlete, I mentioned it in the book, when you want to achieve something, you realize the importance of setting goals. And when you set goals to yourself, what's the most important thing when you set a goal? It's believing. When you believe you can accomplish something, then you work for it. You sacrifice to give your all for it. And then whether you make it or not, you are more likely to achieve something when you believe it. It's not only about, I will believe just so I can accomplish it. No, it's if you believe it, then you will work for it. And everything around you, you are trying and moving things in a way that will make you more likely to accomplish something. Uh, also, your family knowing what you want to achieve, your friends knowing what you want to achieve helps in that sense. And it's not only about screaming to everybody, hey, I want to be the Olympic champion next year, right? Or, hey, I want to be the best. Also, working in secret is important. It's important to know who you are sharing your success with, who you're sharing your goals with, because it's not just everybody in the world. There's your own world that people that believe in you and the people that you believe in, that's your close circle. And it's not everybody that's included in that circle. Unfortunately, not everybody wants really the best for you. We live in this situation where there's a phrase that it's very strong. I'll just mention it just to make a point. You're either envied in life or you're pitied in life we don't want to be pitied but 
we don't want to be envied anyway. But really, when you're working hard for something and you're working hard to achieve your goals, many people will envy in a good way. But there will also be a lot of people that want to deter you or, or not support you in your goals. That's why you, you always have to have this circle of friends that support you and the people you're sharing secretly your goals with. Because this is pretty much your family. Whether they're friends or real family, they are your family in this sense. So believing you can achieve something and working in secret to achieve it is very important. Thank you for that. You said so much. I was writing down all the qualities that I was hearing. But really what resonates with me is having the right support system. Because mm. I do relate when I was even competing Sometimes being an athlete is super fun. The grit and belief, I've always actually enjoyed that. But it can be very lonely in a way that you're not doing well. People often just forget you. When life is going great, everybody wants to be your friend. And then, well, what happened when I was tumbling? Where was the support system then? So you very much get to feel the ups and downs. One of the quotes I still remember, I think Debbie from UTA said, one of the athletics classes, it's not about who you are when life is easy, but it's how you recover from your lows that shapes the character and really shows your personality and who you are. So it's more of how you balance when things aren't going that great. And that goes a lot to what you've mentioned about the trust, knowing who you are, kindness, positivity, having purpose, a sense of purpose, maybe even going back to training wasn't such a great day, but I am not going to judge myself for it. I have given all I had and that's what my body was prepared for. And I will be grateful for having the practice and at least showing up today because that's exactly <laughs> what I could get from the system. I would love to go a little bit more to the nutrition very passionate about it again just through my own mistakes something i'm even playing with fine-tuning now although i'm not a personal athlete anymore i feel nutrition is very important for maximizing any human potential even my thinking i know even at work just going from calls to calls if i'm on my good diet and i don't call diet that i'm oh, not eating dieting but i'm actually watching what i eat and getting the nutrition I can be sharper, focus better, and not really even talking about the importance for a professional athlete or even just maximizing our whole society. Having the right food, how much better society we could become if we knew what to eat better. And the food pyramid, especially living in the U.S., I think it's totally wrong. It's, it's very upside down. There's so much to be improved. I do love your nutrition plan in the book. It's a really great guidance. Very fine-tuned for someone who's working hard. I probably wouldn't be able to eat all of that food per day. Tell me a little bit more about nutrition. How did you come up with a plan? Thank you. It's uh, really interesting. One of the points you mentioned is that you said, I don't think I can eat that much. And it's very interesting because when you think about 2,000 calories of healthy food, it's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. But when you think in a matter of uh, 2,000 calories in junk food, then that may be just four bars of chocolate and a milkshake. So that's nothing. And you will be feeling very hungry soon. And you won't feel satisfied in a long term. And the sugar spikes will um, make you even feel dizzy or uh, even make you feel very hungry and weak. So it's important and it's one of the key items in the nutritional plan is that when you eat 2,000 calories or even 1,500 or not to mention 2,500 calories in healthy food, it's a lot of food. It's a lot of veggies, it's a big salad, a lot of protein, lean protein, it's good carbohydrates, and still maybe you won't be able to finish your meals during the day if you really try 
to eat in whole foods. So that's the main point of the nutritional plan is not give you spoon by spoon the things you need to eat, but give you in a macro uh, nutrient way and mention macro micronutrients you need so that you can be able to make better decisions about the foods you're making. For example, if you're vegan, then I give you those options and what proteins you should consume. If you're good with eating animal protein, then I give you those options. Or if you want only fish options or another source of protein, you have those options. But then not forgetting that you will need also to eat fruits to be able to make those caloric numbers. That's one of the things that many diets have uh, troubled people in their minds thinking all sugars are bad and all type of carbohydrates are bad. If you're not an athlete, then I think you can feel sort of okay sometimes not eating sugar and carbohydrates. But if you are working out, it's going to be very hard for your body to cope without any carbohydrates or without any fruits. You won't be able to recover and you will be feeling cranky. You will be feeling very stressed during the day. And for sure, you will lose some pounds in the first three to 10 days. But then the damage you're making to your body is not healthy at all even though you're losing some fat. And in the short term, it's not so bad. But in the long term, you will see uh, some consequences. And those things we can go for uh, another day talking about these small details. But the main thing about this nutritional program is that you are able to create a consciousness thinking whole foods are the way. Whole foods. The less processed foods you eat, the better you will be. So whole foods is what we want to share and advise to people that they should be eating whole foods in fruits, in vegetables, even in carbohydrates, that carbohydrates are not the enemy. They will be one of your best companions to achieving good results in performance in training. And depending on the event, most likely you need a high caloric intake for you to achieve at an optimal way. Yeah, I, I do agree. The food is very important for recovery, for squeezing the extra things out of the system. It sounds like you've dialed it in just by practice. Are you at all or have you before counted your macros? Have you tried that to really fine tune it? And maybe now it's on autopilot or how did you came up with this is my ideal diet that I perform well on? I can tell you by experience, I've done the no carbs diet before. Cereal mm-hmm. sugar, no carbohydrates. I've done it and I've done it while training hard for the 400 meters. It was not a good experience. It was very ignorant of me to do it. But why was I put in that position to do it? It was because supposedly these scientists were saying it was okay. Yeah. It was literature. It was not my idea. It was not my invention to try the diet. The diet said in literature, it was okay even if you were training hard to do that. And I won't give the names, but they are very renowned doctors that have these diet plans. And now after years, they have changed some of the things they've said. But for many people, the damage has already been there, right? And in my case, my performance suffered. Also, I had bouts of feeling bad, just feeling dizzy because my sugar would drop too low. The glycogen levels for athletes is very important in the first five seconds for a sprinter and then the first 30 seconds for a 400 meter guy and then the first 20 minutes to 45 minutes for a tennis player 
And then after that, you will be burnt out completely if you haven't had any source of glycogen or glucose in, in your system. So yes, by experience, I can tell you I've tried many other diets. What has worked for me is plain whole foods. Plain whole foods, it's really healthy. It gives you the energy you need in a way that your body absorbs it in a very natural way and in a very balanced way with your glucose levels and all this energy you need, you are able to get in and then uh, use it while you are training. So the way you feel in a day-by-day basis is really important. In a short term, it's okay to exaggerate the carbohydrate intake, but it's not sustainable in the long run. That's one of the things I think it's fair to say. If you're thinking of a, of a real change, you still need to think a long-run transformation. The book is a 12-week program with exercises, and for sure you're going to get the results because the training in the book is not so easy if you do it exact to how it's uh, written. The good thing is it gives you the leeway to use the weights as you prefer or as you are capable of. So you're not going to start doing 20 kilos with the weight program. You can start with one pound or no weight if you need. So the program, it's made so that you adapt it to whatever weight you need at the moment. After those 12 weeks, I tell you that it's important for you to consider your life transformation in a long run plan because that's what we want and we need we don't need just a small fix but we need a real fix i agree it's a journey it's not a sprint right if we want to perform well and feel good i am just awful human being when i don't work out so <laughs> just go get a workout in and i'm so nicer <laughs> And when I pair it with a good diet and I feel good about my balanced Clara taking care of myself, the leadership and uh, the person I want to be in, in my other parts of my life, it goes up and improves. Takeshi, I want to thank you so much and love your book, Strong Like Never Before, 12-week training program, which I think is a great time for Building the habit, if you're actually trying to make a change that's about 12 weeks, you should be able to see the results, as you mentioned, and build good habits. Results are great, but focusing on how we structure our day, what we do, what we eat, and building good habits is what will naturally lead to the great results. I love how you incorporated the videos in. You can click to see the manual. Am I doing it right? Because that's a lot of what people also make mistakes Mm. Uh, when they go to the gym, they may not have access to good coaches. They may not be able to explain why they're doing. So I think understanding that is very good. Anything else you would want to close out on before we finish or just sharing what's on your mind? Thank you. What you mentioned is really true. Sometimes my wife will say something like, I think you need a workout now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as athletes, I think we're used to feeling that adrenaline and getting our energy out of workouts. It really helps us. And that's the secret of training and incorporating sports into our daily lives, into our daily routines. Many people that are sedentary and don't work out don't know how exciting it can be to get this boost of energy after feeling a little bit tired. Hopefully this book will continue reaching many people so that they can start and transform their way of eating and their way of living in this sense. It's been so good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and for accepting my invite. It's been great to catch up after so many years. I'm off that's keeping in touch. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm I'm not uh, doing so good at that either. So. <laughs> Have a great rest of the Friday. Takeshi.